Welcome to Drucker on the Dial, a show on leadership and management where timely issues meet timeless principles. Produced by the Drucker Institute at Claremont Graduate University. I'm your host, Palana Tiller. Today on Drucker on the Dial, we're going to talk with two guests about the art of asking questions and the power of inquiry. First, we'll chat with design thinking and innovation expert Warren Berger about his new book, A More Beautiful Question. Our second guest is Lou Santana, the co-founder and co-director of the Right Question Institute. As always, my guest's insights will be illuminated by the teachings of the late Peter Drucker, the author of 39 books and advisor to countless corporations, nonprofit groups, and government agencies. Peter Drucker, the man Businessweeks had invented management. My first guest is Warren Berger, author of the new book, A More Beautiful Question, The Power of Inquiry to Spark Breakthrough Ideas. Berger, whose work has appeared in Fast Company, Harvard Business Review, and Wired, has studied hundreds of the world's leading innovators and entrepreneurs to learn how they generate original ideas and solve problems, often by asking great questions. He also explores why more people don't ask things. Indeed, Berger's research has found that even though we start out asking hundreds of questions a day as children, this propensity for inquiry falls off a cliff as we enter school. And the older we get, the less we tend to be inquisitive as we confront an education and business culture that rewards rote answers. In these environments, Berger suggests, questioning isn't encouraged. In fact, sometimes it's barely tolerated. Peter Drucker certainly understood the inherent power of inquiry. My greatest strength as a consultant, he once remarked, is to be ignorant and ask a few questions. Often, those questions were deceptively simple. What does the customer value? What is our business and what should it be? What would happen if this were not done at all? By probing in this way, Drucker was often able to provide the leaders of some of the world's biggest corporations, nonprofit groups, and government agencies with clarity and insights that otherwise would have remained elusive. Warren Berger, welcome to Drucker on the Dial. I want to begin by asking, what got you so fascinated with questions and led you to writing this book? Yeah, well, it sort of it came out of my previous book, um, which was a study of uh, the world of design and design thinking. And I was looking at how um, a lot of designers, uh, all kinds of designers, product designers, as well as, um, you know, uh, environment designers, city designers, I was looking at how they got through their creative process, how they got to ideas, what were, what were some of the ways that they, uh, they, they did this sort of design thinking. And um, I found that questioning was at the, the starting point for a lot of them. Mm-hmm. That was the thing that allowed them or enabled them to um, look at a situation and frame a problem and figure out how they were going to attack the problem. They, they usually did it all by trying to come up with the best uh, questions. Mm-hmm. And so I thought that was pretty important. And I also thought it could apply outside of the world of design. So when I worked on this book, I really, you know, expanded that to look at how all kinds of people in in business, for example, use questioning to, to attack problems and to um, and to get to innovation. And I looked at, uh, you know, entrepreneurs and CEOs and uh, uh, designers and all kinds of people. Uh, so that's that's pretty much how I ended up with the book. Uh, I've heard people say that there is no such thing as a bad question. Would you say that that's true, or what do you think? Well, I would say that um, there's no such thing uh, probably as a dumb question because a lot of times naive questioning is really effective. So when you can come at a subject and ask really fundamental questions like, 
you know, why are we doing this? <laughs> why have we been doing this the same way for 20 years? Mm-hmm. That could sound like a dumb question to someone who's, you know, steeped in, a, in, a, in an industry or a business or a company. But o- oftentimes those questions are, are really valuable. Um, so I, I don't think, uh, I tend to think that, you know, we should be careful about labeling questions as, uh, as stupid questions or dumb questions. I do think there can be counterproductive questions. I think, um, you know, my own pet peeve uh, is when people ask questions to show off or to maybe play devil's advocate in a meeting. Mm-hmm. Um, in other words, they're not really looking for information with their question. You know, um, or I also have a problem with questions that are very negative in tone. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you were to say, how in the world are we ever going to pay for this? You know, yeah. that's kind of a question that uh, it, it kind of shuts, it shuts things down. Um, so not that you should never ask how are we going to pay for this, <laughs> but it's, it's more about the way that the tone that you use. Um, let's say in a business meeting uh, with the questions you ask, you know, if you use the question almost to attack uh, people who are exploring something, by suddenly peppering them with extremely practical questions, it can really shut down uh, the exploration process. So one of the things that can happen with questions is not so much bad questions, but sometimes you ask questions in the wrong tone, mm-hmm. and sometimes you can ask them at the wrong time. You know, sometimes you can ask a practical question about how much this is going to cost us. Yes, that question does need to be asked. It's going to have to be asked at some point, but maybe not at the very beginning of, a, of an exploration process. Maybe you hold those practical questions back a little bit. And so in general, then, what makes a good question? A good question to me is one that, um, you know, I use the term beautiful question. Yeah. Um, a good question is any question that is it involves curiosity and exploration and just trying to get new information. Mm-hmm. Um, when it's a beautiful question to me is when it's a little bit bolder and it, it actually challenges the way we think about something. So, you know, again, going back to, you know, if, if you look at the way something's been done in an industry for years and years and you ask, you know, why are we doing it this way? And what if we what if we tried to do it in a completely different way by, you know, combining X with Y? You know, that to me is a, is a beautiful question because now you're really changing the way people think about an issue. Mm-hmm. You're kind of altering the, the perception. Um, and you're also asking a question that could conceivably lead to big changes. If you can follow through and get to an answer, it could lead to, you know, innovation. It could lead to, um, you know, to, to major uh, progress. Mm-hmm. So that, those to me are the really great questions that you want to look for. You have a, a chapter in the book about why we stop questioning and, and you discuss how it is that as kids, we're all typically very curious, but eventually we, we sort of mature into these less questioning entities and that maybe that happens organizationally as well. Can you help us understand what happened and, you know, how, yeah. how and why did questioning become a lost art? Well, yeah, you know, we start out at age three um, and then four and five. Um, we're, we're like uh, questioning machines. You know, we, we just... Um, we're soaking up so much information and, and we have, and we, we generate so many questions because our, our brains are in this kind of expansive mode, mm-hmm. you know, where we're trying to take in as much as possible and understand it. Um, that starts to change somewhere around age five or six. All of a sudden, the, um, the upward, the rise upward in questioning goes the other way and it starts to go down. And it's interesting, you know, there's, there's, there's a number of factors that, that may contribute to that, but it does seem that our education system, which is very much geared towards 
teaching kids to memorize answers and to, and to answer questions that are put to them, mm-hmm. whether by a teacher or on a test. We have a system that basically is de- devised to reward answers and not really to encourage too much questioning because if kids are asking a lot of questions in class, well, you know, it slows things down. It maybe, it maybe keeps the, the, the class from covering all the material they have to cover. So there's almost a disincentive mm-hmm. um, toward questioning. And uh, there's a, a disincentive toward really imaginative questioning because that's considered to be off-topic. Right. It's considered to be, you know, irrelevant. Well, don't ask that question because it doesn't have to directly to do with what we're talking about here. Mm-hmm. So I think uh, these messages get, you know, internalized by all of us as we're growing up and we kind of learn that questioning is may not be uh, desired uh, entirely and we also uh, begin to think that maybe questioning is a, is a sign of weakness mm-hmm. that it shows that you don't know something and therefore um, you ought to keep that quiet and not reveal your uh, your your lack of knowledge um, to people so as a result by the time we get into the business world you know a lot of us are um, may be reluctant to uh, to ask questions. And then in the business world, I think this is just continues, this trend of sort of discouraging questioning. Uh, the factors there, what, what's going on there is, you know, questions are often seen as inefficient. Right. You know, they may slow down the meeting. <laughs> yeah. they, they, they basically don't seem to be contributing directly to moving forward and getting things done, um, which is not true, you know, because questions oftentimes... Uh, they don't slow down things. They can have the uh, the effect of opening up mm-hmm. doors and opportunities that we didn't know about. So it's just a misperception about the value of questions. And I think uh, I think that's changing now. I think you know, especially um, if you you know if you if you look at in companies in Silicon Valley, sure. you know, I mean, they just worship questioning. Um, uh, the line has been used out there that questions are the new answers because you know? <laughs> they understand if you look at companies uh, and I could name, you know, a bunch of them, but, you know, companies like Nest and Square and, you know, all these hot startups, mm-hmm. uh, Drop, Dropbox, they all started with a question, sure. you know, and, and the founders know that. They know that, you know, their company exists because they asked a question that other people hadn't yet answered or weren't even asking. Mm-hmm. And they understand how important questioning is to innovation. So they tend to, you know, believe in it and they tend to, they tend to have the attitude, you know, Jack Dorsey of uh, Twitter and uh, Square, you know, his, his credo is, you know, question everything. <laughs> so they, they believe in this very deeply. Now, w- when you look at larger companies, I think maybe they're starting to get, understand the importance of questioning a little bit, mm-hmm. um, but they still have issues about bringing questioning into the company. And, uh, you know, there may be issues of, do we want to open the floodgates, right, you know, to right. having, to encouraging all of our employees to be asking a lot of questions. If that happens, what are we going to do with all those questions? How will, how will we handle it? Um, will the questions be irrelevant? What will we do? You know, and so I think um, there's some nervousness about that. And then the other issue is, you know, uh, big companies have a lot of layers of middle management. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think middle managers uh, are sometimes not receptive to questioning. Uh, They've been trained to sort of guard their turf a little bit. And 
you know, they may see a lot of questioning as a challenge to their authority. Sure. If people un- if people under them are asking a lot of questions, that could be perceived as, well, these people are challenging my uh, my expertise, you know. Yeah, yeah. So these are all issues that I think the business in the business world would have to be dealt with as a company begins to embrace questioning. And what do you think uh, are some particular tools or processes that organizations or companies that do want to embrace more questioning can employ to change the culture a little bit? Yeah, I think I think there's a number of things they can do. I mean, I think it starts with um, the leadership of the company making it clear that questioning is valued. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, you do that by asking questions yourself as a leader, putting questions out there, and and letting the company know, hey, we you know we we believe in questions. We're we're not just about claiming we have the answers. You know, we believe that uh, that questions are great to talk about. They're great to explore, and that they have value in and of themselves, you know, you hear executives say sometimes, um, I don't want anyone to bring me a question unless they also bring me an answer. Mm-hmm, sure. And that's the really not the right thing to say because it's not the right message to be putting out there because the fact of the matter is um, questions don't always have immediate answers to them. Mm-hmm. And you should not expect the person who comes up with a really smart question about your strategy or your your product or your relationship with your customer, you should not expect that person to also have the complete perfect answer, because that may be something that you have to work on as a company. It yeah. may be to get to get to that answer. It may take you a couple of years. You know, you might have to think. <laughs> but but it could be very worthwhile when you do get to the answer. It could be something that changes uh, is a game changer. You know, yeah. for your company. So I I don't like the idea of putting all that on the on the person who thinks of the question. Mm-hmm. Instead celebrate the fact that that person came up with that question, you know, reward them for coming up with that question and then say, okay, this is a great question. We're going to work on this as a company. So I think that's a, that's an important, uh, it's important about how how we reward and punish questioning in, (laughs) um, you know, in our, in our workplace, you know, another way that companies can punish, um, can punish questioning related to the first one of, uh, of you know saying you have to bring the answer. Another way you can punish employees is when they raise a question. You say, okay, now it's your job to figure it out. Right. You right. know, you, you raise that question. Now it's your job. Right. And that sends a well, signal. <laughs> yeah. You know, and that's that again. That's a disincentive because sure. th- this person maybe may have enough on their plate already. Mm-hmm. And what you're saying is, you know, because they raised the question, because they spotted something interesting an inconsistency or something that was wrong that your company needed to know about because they spotted that now they have to, they're punished by having to extra work, you know, loaded on their plate. So I think again, you know, you have to be really careful about, you know, how you reward or, or, or punish the asking of questions. And the other thing I would say is, um, you know, if you want to encourage questioning, you know, create places where it's safe to ask questions, Mm -hmm. create forums, create online forums, uh, create discussion groups, create, uh, you know, um, environments where people uh, are encouraged to question and feel feel safe uh, questioning. Mm-hmm. And then the last thing you might want to think about is, you know, can you begin to have a discussion within the company about what are good questions, what are the kind of questions we're looking for, how do you ask better questions, and uh, and, and I think so that way you can encourage people to to question the way you want them to question, right. um, you know, as opposed to, you know, it is possible people 
to ask questions that are, that are that go a little off topic or that that don't really get to what you're what's going to really help the company. You know, they may get caught up in um, questions about, gee, why can't we have a shorter workday? You know? <laughs> and uh, you know, you, you want to show them the difference between you know really productive, right. uh, beautiful questions, and more mundane questions or more questions that are kind of off topic. Right, right. I, I took your quiz, uh, your online quiz, to learn a bit more about my my IQ, my inquiry quotient. Good, and, good. Uh, and well, I didn't do poorly, but I still you know could stand to improve just a little tiny bit. Um, but right. but how can individuals who maybe aren't as used to asking questions or as comfortable with with uh, asking questions, get better at it. Well, I think the you know the, there's a, there's a number of things that that make anyone a better questioner, and I sort of you know cobbled this together based on on talking to you know master questioners, you mm-hmm. know people who do this very well, and seeing what they do. And um, a lot of it has to do with sort of training yourself to be more of an observer, a mm-hmm. better observer, because questions a lot of times come out of observation. Mm-hmm and listening and paying attention, paying close attention. So you almost have to train yourself to step back, you know, from uh, habits, habitual thinking. Um, It can even be stepping back from daily routines, you know, uh, stepping back from rushing through doing things uh, without thinking about them. Mm -hmm. Um, Getting yourself to occasionally look at what you're doing with a fresh eye and uh, and a critical eye mm-hmm. and a discerning eye where you say, um, gee, this is the way we we do this particular process here in the company. Um, why are we doing it this way? Uh, what's what was the original reason why we started doing this this way? And um, does that still hold up today, or are we doing something that no longer quite makes sense? Mm-hmm. So it's really hard to do that kind of stuff because when you're familiar with something. Uh, it becomes almost invisible to you. So when you're doing, when things are very close to you, you can't see them unless you make a special effort, unless you make an effort to try to, again, I use that phrase stepping back all the time. I think that's useful to think about stepping back Mm -hmm. uh, from from the the familiar, the routine, the habit. So that's a big thing. Um, I think also, you know, being unafraid to ask sort of very basic fundamental questions and share them with others, you know, um, being unafraid to ask, uh, you know, that sort of why or why are we doing this right. or what if we did that? Um, really fundamental um, issues that, you know, that oftentimes people are a little reluctant to, to ask because they feel it's too fundamental, too sure. basic. Sure. Um, don't worry about that. You know, don't worry about naive questions because those can be really, really productive. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, uh, dig deep, you know, when you're, when you're questioning. That's another thing that you, you've got to do is, uh, you know, don't just um, ask, ask a question, but, you know, once you've asked it, start to um, dig into that question and, and, and do some research and, you know, keep, uh, keep asking why and keep following up on your own question. Um, I, I talk about being willing to live with questions. Mm-hmm. You know, that's really important because, um, you know, we're used to, in the age of Google, you know, we're, we've kind of gotten used to this idea that, well, any question I have, it's answerable I can, right now. Yeah, it's, uh, get the answer right at my fingertips, mm-hmm. you know, in two seconds. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's not really true, you know. I mean, that's true with very, very basic questions. That's true with questions that are about, you know, how do I get from point A to point B, you know, if I'm driving tomorrow. Um, you know, yes, basic information can easily be gotten through Google searches. But if we're talking about, you know, sort of profound information uh, in, in terms of your company, if we're talking about 
how are we going to, you know, uh, how are we going to do something that hasn't been done before? Um, how are we going to reinvent this sector that we're in? You know, you're not going to find that on Google, you know. Yeah. So I think that, that we have to get used to the idea that questions uh, are things that we pursue and, and live with over time and get comfortable with that uncertainty while we're, while we're chasing them yeah. um, in the hopes that we will eventually get to an answer. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the last thing I would say about you know, how to question well is um, you have to act on your questions. This is the really important thing that a lot of people don't do mm-hmm. uh, or they don't understand about questioning. They think it's like philosophy, right? They think that you know, questioning is just to be you raise an important question and you, you think about it a while and you maybe debate it with someone and then you move on, you know, but if you, when, it, when we're talking about innovative questioning, you know, you have to act on those questions mm-hmm. if you want something to happen. So right. you have to, you have to move from, you know, raising the question. Uh, I, in the book, I talk about a, a sequence. It's, it's not a hundred percent foolproof, but if you look at innovation stories, it holds up a lot of the time. And questioning tends to move from why to what if to how. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you, you know, the why is kind of understanding your situation or your problem. The what if is beginning to imagine new possibilities and uh, new solutions. And the how is executing. Right. You know, how, how do you make it happen? Right. Right. So I think you, you've got to, if you're going to be a good, effective questioner, you've got to ask those, those three questions and uh, and you've got to follow through. You know, you've got to do it sequentially. You've got to you've got to get from uh, you know basically from thinking to action. Right, right. What's the single best question someone has ever asked you? Well, I'll, I'll tell you the one the one that I, I my favorite one that I came across in the book was uh, there's, there's, there's a there's a few a few great ones in the mm-hmm. book, but the one that I I really still love and uh, people may know this one because it's kind of famous mm-hmm. is uh, the question that started the Polaroid. Uh, company it was it was asked by the three-year-old daughter of of the polaroid founder edwin land um who asked why do we have to wait for the picture <laughs> and you know he'd taken her he'd taken her photo with a with a standard camera this is back in the 1940s mm-hmm. and then she he was going to send the camera out to be developed and, which would have taken you know days and she didn't understand why this why she had to wait you yeah. know why you take a picture why can't you see it right away yeah and she asked that innocent question, and that question then, you know, what she was doing without knowing it was, you know, challenging the assumption. Right. And the assumption at the time was, yeah, you have to wait. You have to wait for a picture. And she was challenging that. And when she did that, her father then started to think about that question in a different way. He started to say, yeah, you know, why do we have to wait? <laughs> and then he started to think about it, and then he moved on to, well, what if we did this, and right, how might right. we do that? Mm-hmm. And he eventually basically created the uh, the instant camera. So I love that question on so many levels because I, I love the way it shows that an innocent outsider mm-hmm. can sometimes uh, ask a question and in this case, a child right. can ask a question, um, you know, in a way that just reframes reality. Right. It just changes the way you look at reality. Right. And uh, and I love the fact that you know, um, it's just uh, it was then the question was then picked up by someone else, and they were able to run with it. And so that's probably my favorite question. That's great. I have one last question for you, and and um, it's a personal question that comes actually from Peter Drucker's life. It's a question that yeah. a, a teacher asked him when he was a young boy, and. He went on to use this question with his students and consulting clients, and that's, what do you want to be remembered for? Mm, 
Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah, yeah. And I think, I think uh, you know, that's one of the things I, I talk about in the latter part of the book is the idea of, um, of you know, using questioning to figure out your purpose. Mm-hmm. You know, using questioning to. Um, there's a great question that the um, the uh, the president, the CEO of LinkedIn, um, uh, says that he asks people when he's when he's hiring them or when he's interviewing them for a job, and that he asks them to to think of the question, you know. When you're looking back uh, on your career, you know, 20 years from now, what do you want to say you've accomplished? <laughs> and, you know, he says that very few people think about that. And so I think that's a big part of what questioning, uh, you know, what questioning can help us do. It can help us think about things that we're not really important things that for some reason we're not bothering to think about. Mm-hmm. So and it's done that with me. And so the way I would answer that question, you know, um, for myself would be, you know, at this point, I've gotten so into questioning that my beautiful question is, you know, how might I get more people to appreciate the importance of questioning? Mm-hmm. And so that's, to me, you know, when when I look back years from now, I hope that I can say that, yeah, you know, I, I was able to spread this idea of of the importance of questioning to more people. And hopefully that led to a lot of the good things that come out of out of questioning. That's great. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me and for joining us here on Drucker on the Dial. Sure, this is fun. Thanks. Thanks for having me. (laughs) Next up is Lou Santana. Santana is the co-founder and co-director of the Right Question Institute, a Cambridge, Massachusetts-based nonprofit that aims to make democracy work better by teaching a strategy that allows anyone, no matter their educational, income, or literacy level, to learn to ask better questions and thereby participate more effectively in decisions that affect them. It works in a variety of areas, including education, healthcare, parenting, and voter engagement. Given his own passion for inquiry, Peter Drucker would have surely been fascinated by and applauded Santana's work. The right answers are not the result of brilliance or of intuition, Drucker noted. The right answers are the result of asking the right questions. With its practical bent and a focus on action, the Right Question Institute also would have met another Drucker dictum. There are few things as useless, if not as dangerous, as the right answer to the wrong question Drucker asserted in the practice of management. But ultimately, he added, the most important and more difficult is to make effective the course of action decided upon. Lou Santana, thank you for joining us on Drucker on the Dial. Thank you, Palana, for having me. So let me just start from a very uh, elementary, basic question. Would you tell us what makes a right question and why is there an institute dedicated to them? Well, that, that's an interesting question. Well, I will say that um, some questions are better than others. Uh, what might be the right question for me might not be the right one for you. Um, the right question can be one that you one that you ask in order to get information that you need. It can be a simple or it can be a complex question. So, for example, imagine that you are in a job interview and you don't ask a question about how um, much you will get paid, when do you get paid, work schedule, etc. So any of those could be, you know, the right question to ask at an interview. I have been uh, in meetings uh, where I have made a commitment 
And um, then I don't ask the question about for how long am I making the commitment. <laughs> so that probably is a right question to ask because mm-hmm. I might be getting into something that will take a lot of my time. Mm-hmm. So depending on this situation, you know, um, you might ask a question that is very simple and that will be right for you. and Or you might ask a deep question and that is, you know, the question that you will need at that time. Mm-hmm. And tell me about um, the Right Question Institute, then. What is it that you and your co-founder, co-director, Dan Rothstein, um, have set out to do? Well, um, what we have done is to develop a, an educational strategy that people can use um, across fields, uh, in the classrooms, across subject areas, and that right now um, is being promoted also uh, for the uh, workplace. But what we really want to do is to make that strategy available to many people. We want to democratize the teaching of question formulation, Mm -hmm. and we also want to help people learn how to focus effectively Mm-hmm. Tell me a little bit about um, how you personally came to this work. What drove you to, to be interested in questions? I know that you've been studying questions for a couple of decades now, but you just founded the Institute a few years ago. What what led you to this world? Well, you know, um, part of what happened to us was that we learned uh, from all sources of insight. So Dan and I and others were working with uh, low-income families, immigrant families mm-hmm. in a town up north uh, of Boston. And we were working in a dropout prevention uh, program and our job was to engage parents in their children's education. And very often we heard from the families that they were not going to the schools because they didn't even know what questions to ask. Mm. And we were very smart, and we gave them the questions. And by doing that, what we did was to foster dependency, because every time that they needed questions, they used to come back and ask <laughs> us, you know, what questions, what, what are the questions that I should ask when I have a meeting with the teacher, or what are the questions that I should ask when um, I'm going to a, a doctor's appointment or looking for a job. So at some point, we realized that it was not about giving them a list of most important questions, but it was about developing the skill so they could ask questions in any situation mm-hmm. that they were in. And I came to, to the work um, um, in a way that I never thought that I will be doing that work or even this work because I'm a migrant from the Caribbean, and when I came to... Um, to Massachusetts, mm-hmm. I was a, a welfare recipient, and but I got this social worker who was thinking about doing the work differently, mm-hmm. and all the time he used to teach me things. And I got to this point in which I believed that I could help myself. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, I got out of welfare. I found a job. I went to school. But all those things were done because I put some effort, but also because of the different people that I found as I navigated systems who were willing to help and teach and build my skills. Mm-hmm. 
You mentioned earlier that you're looking to democratize access to the question developing skill set. Could you talk a little bit about the relationship between question asking and how that rolls up into into making democracy work better? Well, you know, you want to develop people's ability to think and to take action. And one way of doing that is by building the question asking skills. Having the skill to ask questions allows people to be uh, strategic, to uh, plan ahead, to hold decision makers accountable, to mm-hmm. navigate systems, to advocate uh, for themselves. So um, what we see is that those are skills that every citizen needs. Students need that. Workers need that. People at the community level also need to have those skills because those are foundational for participation. Mm -hmm. So what we see is also that when people develop these skills, uh, that they can use it in every, use them in every encounter that they have with programs, services, and institutions. Mm-hmm. When they use the skill to ask questions and focus on decisions, they are able to change things. They are able to get the things that they need. They hold decision makers accountable at that level of the individual encounters that they have with programs, services, and institutions. And that gives them an opportunity to um, change the culture of those organizations. They are able to also uh, practice participating in decisions. Mm -hmm. Essentially imbuing a sense of of agency around around their lives and around their experience. And uh, that's, that's correct. Mm-hmm. You mentioned that one of the communities you serve is also the educational community. And I, I have a friend who's a very experienced humanities teacher, and she's very familiar with the world of, of Socratic learning and of understanding by design, both of which rely on questions. But I mentioned that I was going to be interviewing you, and she was very curious to learn about your specific methodology that you've developed for teachers to encourage student-based inquiry. Could you tell us about the classroom content that you've developed and the question formulation technique that you have there? Well, it's interesting because um, uh, it, back in 2011, we got this invita- invitation uh, from Harvard Education Press mm-hmm. to put our ideas in a book. And uh, our book makes just one change. That is uh, being uh, disseminated around the country and also around the world. Mm-hmm. So we have teachers who are using the process um, uh, here as in the United States as well as internationally. The um, the process that we have developed works in the classroom, mm-hmm. but also is the same process that we use everywhere in healthcare, in civic engagement, in social services to build people's capacity. Uh, for the classroom, um, what we do is that uh, the strategy is back in a way that teachers can develop their educational content by using our process. Mm -hmm. And when that happens, when they use it, the students develop critical thinking skills or thinking abilities. So uh, the strategy has a question focus that is related to the content that the teacher is teaching. Mm -hmm. And the question focus, um, excuse me, the um, 
the, the question focus is what they have to come up or decide every time that they are using the question formulation technique. Mm -hmm. Once they have the question focus, there are some rules that the students use to produce their own questions. And the rules are ask as many questions as you can. Do not stop to try to answer, judge, or analyze the questions. Write down every question in the exact way that you uh, think about that you think about it and change any statements into questions. Mm -hmm. So what the rules do is that they set up the stage for producing the questions. Mm -hmm. uh, the students discuss the questions and they think about what might be easy or difficult about following the rules. After they do that, they uh, spend uh, some time in producing questions. So they follow the rules to produce their own questions. Mm -hmm. uh, there is a step in which they look at different kinds of questions. They look at uh, close-ended questions. They look at open-ended questions. They discuss uh, the advantages and disadvantages of asking close-ended questions and the advantages and disadvantages of asking open-ended questions. So part of what we promote it is that one question is not better than the other, mm -hmm. but, but that both kinds of questions are useful and there are benefits in asking them. So uh, they, the students practice changing questions from one type to another. Mm -hmm. Then they prioritize the questions. They choose the questions that are most important or the questions that they can use in uh, writing an essay or doing research or developing a project and so on. Mm -hmm. And then there is a last step, a uh, couple of uh, steps. They use the questions. Uh, to um, to do the research, to do the projects, etc., et whatever the teacher decided that was criteria mm -hmm. for using the questions. There is a last step in which they reflect about what they learn and how they can use what they learn. Mm -hmm. So it is a very engaging, participatory uh, process for students. Sure. Do you find that there are any arguments against student-driven inquiry or people who are resistant to this method? Well, um, what I have seen more is that the teachers are excited mm -hmm. about our process because it's simple. We spent years in making it as simple as possible. Teachers learn it today and they can implement the, the process tomorrow in their classrooms. Mm -hmm. um, what And also, um, Part of uh, what I have also seen is that there are some strategies that are more complicated than ours mm -hmm. and that um, that are more difficult uh, to implement. Mm -hmm. um, our strategy can be used along or can be integrated in uh, those efforts because um, what we do with our process is to uh, give license and build the confidence in the students to ask the questions. Mm -hmm. And then after that, the teachers can do um, can do more work. They can use uh, other strategies for asking questions that uh, that they uh, that they know about. Um, I think the argument will be on whether how deep. Um, our process uh, takes students, uh -huh. and if um, if you should 
push students from the beginning to ask the the, the better questions mm-hmm. that um that that people talk about um our process is very flexible and there are three things that happens um it allows students to do divergent thinking mm-hmm. so thinking from different angles and perspectives thinking uh broadly outside of the box there is convergent thinking they begin to analyze synthesize they look at how they can take action with the questions and then there is metacognitive thinking or metacognition in the process in which they reflect at different points about the work that they are doing and what they are uh, what they are learning. Mm-hmm. And and Luz, could you tell us what might be some ways that all people can learn to be more comfortable with questions? Are there some some basic strategies that each of us could could learn that would help make us better at, at asking questions and make it more of a a habit of mind? Well, um People need a chance. Uh, there is a need to create this space to ask the questions because one of the things that happen is, is that very often uh, people are thinking that they are doing that. Uh, they give information and they are assuming that that will prompt people to ask questions mm-hmm. or um, they give examples of questions and thinking that by modeling uh, is a way of people uh, to come up with their own questions. But I think that what people need to do is to really exercise, to exercise their brain and practice using uh practice coming up with with their their own questions. Mm-hmm. I think that there is a need also to develop that mindset and culture in which questions, asking questions is the, the norm. Mm-hmm. I have one last question for you, Luz, and it's a personal question. It's a question that comes from Peter Drucker's life. Um, and it's a question that a teacher asked him when he was a young man, and he went on to use this question with his own students and consulting clients, and that's, what do you want to be remembered for? Hmm. That's a good question. <laughs> I have a tendency of not putting value in the question. <laughs> Uh, well, I think that I would like to be remembered for my concrete contributions to shifting practices and also uh, for my work in strengthening uh, democracy. I would like to be remembered by being part of, of this team here at the Right Question Institute that has worked in develop, developing tools that can change people, people's lives for the better especially uh, the people from the low-income communities I'm coming from, the um, uh, communities where people are not uh, participating, the the disenfranchised communities. And now, here's Drucker Institute Executive Director Rick Wartsman with his bi-weekly column, The Drucker Difference. In 1952, as the age of the organization man dawned, Peter Drucker wrote an article in Fortune titled How to Be an Employee. In it, he dispensed all sorts of advice, including tips on how to communicate with your boss, how to figure out what kind of job is right for you, and even how to tell when it's time to quit. The entire essay was predicated on a major historical shift from an economy once made up of farmers, merchants, and craftspeople to one increasingly dominated by large corporations. Ours has become a society of employees, Drucker wrote, A hundred years ago, only one out of every five Americans at work was employed, 
that is, worked for somebody else. Today, the ratio is reversed. Only one out of five is self-employed. The question now is whether we're poised to swing sharply back in the other direction, and if so, what it means. Certainly, lots of workers seem to be pining for just such a change. A study recently released by the online education company Creative Live suggests that 55% of employed U.S. adults, some 78 million of them, would jump ship from a traditional job to be self-employed if they could still pay their bills. The finding was based on a Harris poll of more than 2,000 people. That more than half of American workers would like to strike out on their own says a lot about what folks value in their jobs and, in turn, what most employers are evidently failing to provide them. It's also a blunt reminder of the ways in which people's career expectations have been upended in the decades since Drucker penned that fortune piece. The whole labor market has changed, says Micah Salmi, Creative Lives CEO, noting that the concept of lifetime employment at a single company has gone the way of the typing pool. This reality, in which it has become common for enterprises to downsize even when they're solidly profitable, is surely driving some of the growth in self-employment. Indeed, the ranks of proprietors in the United States, owners of businesses who are not wage and salary workers, have practically doubled as the traditional social contract between employer and employee has been ripped apart, rising from 11% of those with a job in 1970 to 21% in 2011, according to an analysis last year by NewGeography.com. Yet Salmi is convinced that there's another reason people are so hot to go it alone these days. Their jobs don't offer a sufficient outlet for their creativity. People are simply unfulfilled, says Salmi, whose company provides courses in a variety of areas, photography, video, design, business, audio, music, and software. Some use the skills they acquire through Creative Live to land a fresh position in their present workplace. Others learn new things so as to pursue a hobby something Drucker would have advocated, by the way, for the corporate stiff and the self-employed alike. People who have no life outside their jobs are not the really successful people, Drucker wrote. I have seen far too many of them shoot up like a rocket because they had no interests except the job, but they also come down like the rocket's burned-out stick. Meanwhile, many of the two million students who have taken a creative live class to date have parlayed the knowledge they've gained into starting their own business. Salmi doesn't have exact numbers, but he says this group of entrepreneurs is clearly a sizable part of his company's customer base. Feeling hopelessly stuck in a job, these are people who say, I have to get out of here, he explains. They really want to do something different. Harris Poll backs him up. Among its findings, 36% of employed adults want to quit their current job in search of something more creative. Interestingly, Drucker tended to sneer at the idea of creativity. Only the dilettante can afford to forego monotony and to look for creative fulfillment, he asserted in Concept of the Corporation, his 1946 landmark. After all, as Drucker observed, most every occupation has plenty of aspects to it that are mind-numbingly dull, even being, say, a concert pianist. Very few assembly line jobs are as tedious as to practice the scales, Drucker wrote. It is not routine and monotony which produce dissatisfaction on the job, Drucker added, but the absence of recognition, of meaning, of relation of one's own work to society. In this regard, I think Salmi and Drucker are actually saying much the same thing. 
people are looking for a sense of purpose in what they do. Salmi happens to frame this around creativity. Drucker would have used a different C word, contribution, but both in the end would have come to the same place. Loyalty can no longer be obtained by the paycheck, Drucker wrote in a 1992 essay for Harvard Business Review. The organization must earn loyalty by proving to its knowledge employees that it offers to them exceptional opportunities for putting their knowledge to work. Otherwise, they may well bolt and go hang their own shingle someplace else. A version of that essay first appeared in Time.com. Thank you for tuning in to Drucker on the Dial. Follow us on Twitter at DruckerInst, D-R-U-C-K-E-R-I-N-S-T, for all the very latest here at the Drucker Institute. As always, you can follow our ongoing conversation about leadership and management at our daily blog, The Drucker Exchange, at thedx.org. The dx.org.